the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. We got a great show. We got a great show today. You're going to want to tune in. We've got John Schlafly, as always, the Schlafly Report. And it is uh, his column, which is over at townhall.com, comes out just in a few well, a few hours ago, I think it was. So we'll talk with John. His column is about Liz Cheney losing her leadership position in the Republican Party and the larger context of that. So you're going to want to hear John Schlafly. And also we'll talk today with Matt Stoller. Matt Stoller is an author of a book called Goliath about the power of monopolies and business. Really good book. I have it. I've read it. I actually have, I'll tell him, I confess, I haven't read it. I've listened to it. It's audible. I got his audible because I wanted to listen to it on the drive back and forth to work. Uh, but he's a great guy. He's over at Substack also writing over there. So you'll check him out. We'll talk with him. Before we get to that, let me remind you, go to ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com, and sign up for the daily email I send out, the Pro America Report. You're going to want that. Every morning, 5 a.m. Pacific time, 8 8 a.m. East Coast time, you'll get that in your inbox Monday through Friday. It'll be what you need to know, a segment on that. That's what we're doing now. It'll also be a few other uh, articles and some things to catch you up on things. So keep that in mind. It's um, ProAmericaReport.com. You can also get all these interviews I do and segments from the radio show posted over there. All right. Now... Let me, um, let's see here. Uh, let me tell you, this is really important. I want to set this story up for you, set up what happened. A couple of years ago, my wife and I, for the first time in a very long time, probably in five years or more, went away without our children. I think my father and my, maybe my mother-in-law and father-in-law stayed. I'm not sure. Somebody stayed with our kids. And we went just for two nights a weekend to uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And we did that. We'd never been there. Neither of us had ever been there because we'd heard it was a wonderful city, historic, lots of things to see, and good food. And so we flew down there. I think we got down there Friday afternoon, maybe Friday mid-afternoon, and we stayed until Sunday. Uh, at about 2 o'clock was our flight home. We had a wonderful time. But on Sunday, we went to church. Even when you're on vacation eating your way through Charleston, you want to go to church. We went to church Sunday morning, and after the church uh, service, the the um, the uh, uh, I think it was the in the announcements, I don't know if it was... I think as it was the pastor said, if you want to hear more about this church, come over here. We've got one of our uh, our members of our church. He'll give you a little tour and talk about it. So my wife, that's kind of cool. Let's go over. And we're the only ones that showed up. And there was a man there. His name is Gene D'Agostino. And Gene D'Agostino turns out he was from, I think, up in Connecticut. He and his wife had retired to South Carolina. He's a really sharp guy. And we had a great time. And it turns out he had been, he's a Republican. He'd been at the Republican convention in Cleveland and actually had been at the pro-life event. Uh, he'd been at the pro-life event. Event um, uh, that Phyllis Schlafly hosted called the Life of the Party uh, at the uh, at the Cleveland Browns football stadium. Uh, and so anyway, we had a nice chat. He gave us a little tour of the church, and we went on from there. And he and I have stayed in touch. Well, earlier today, he texted me and said, "Hey, are you leading the effort to get Donald Trump as speaker?" And I said, well, I've talked about it on the radio show, but I don't know about leading the effort. He said, well, I got a, the Washington Examiner sent him a, an article, and he got. Um, he sent me a screenshot. They were quoting that Ed Martin said this, and it's true, of course. I did say it a few months ago. But now I'm renewing the call, and I want to walk through this, how important this is. 
Here's the thing about this. This is both an exercise in politics as well as policy and the Constitution. But the politics is really simple. If Donald Trump is not on the ballot, the Trump supporters, the sort of the sort of MAGA factor, the X factor that's MAGA of any block of voters that votes Republican, those people are not going to be energized. No matter how hard you work, they may hate Biden. Right right now, what 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 Republicans and conservatives and normal people are seeing is Joe Biden is making a mess of this country, and therefore you want to change direction. That gets you a solid Republican vote, but that doesn't get you the MAGA factor because the MAGA factor despises all of the, the all the aspects of the institutional uh, 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 party system. Both parties they don't trust the election system, especially not after the last uh, election. So you have to motive. Now some of them will be appalled by Biden and they'll wish Trump was back and they'll vote Republican. But a lot of times they'll look up and say House races. I just don't like anybody in power. And so you've got to motivate the MAGA, the MAGA factor, the X factor that's MAGA. And, you know, you talked, I started talking to Congressman Pete Sessions of Texas, and he said a lot of the people up in the House and Senate, the Republicans think that they won because they did good messaging. He said we all won because of Trump. Trump had more voters coming towards us, more people that believed in the vision. You're seeing this in the data, by the way. They're starting to break it out. More uh, people of color voted for Trump. More folks. It just was a success. He was a success. And uh, and so here's the thing. If Trump announces that he will become speaker, it instantly agitates. I mean, totally agitates his base and people are just running through walls of fire to get there. And you can say, well, won't that excite the opposition? Yeah, but they're already excited, right? They're already organized. They've already got billions and billions of dollars appropriated in the COVID giveaway that will be used next year to get out the vote for the unions and get out the vote for the hyphenated Americans and all. You can't think that they're not motivated. The second thing is a matter of policy slash uh, constitution. Trump as speaker, he would control the the checkbook. You know, the budgets all in, uh, originate from the House. He would have massive amounts of authority. He would be one of the, you know, two or three leading Republican, uh, uh, no, leading uh, American uh, elected officials, right? It would be the president and the Speaker of the House and the president pro tem of the Senate. I mean, the president of the Senate, the, uh, you know, in that case, it would either, it's either Schumer or McConnell. But it's the perfect post for him to be take a prominent role. And it's the perfect post. And here's another little trick. You know who will want this? The media will want it. Because, man, it's boring. It's just not fun. It's not fun without Trump around. So I, I'm, I'm being totally serious that the republic of this, na- this nation, this republic, needs Trump to announce, probably after the first of the year, and announce, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, go ahead and I'm going to help back candidates, and I'm going to ask them, oh, and here's a practical detail. Kevin McCarthy's not going to get the confidence of America and especially the MAGA factor. That even though he's been a lot better in the last couple of years with Trump, they just don't trust him. You know, he's a young gun. He comes out of the Paul Ryan, Eric Cantor, uh, John Boehner school. No, but nobody trusts him. Until uh, until Liz Cheney decided to go crazy and get, and carry on, McCarthy was one, one of the ones that backed her, was, you know, one of the people that put her in. And so McCarthy's not really going to be, he's never going to get MAGA Nation excited. And you're not going to get MAGA Nation excited with Elise Stefanik. In fact, she's already said she's not going to run for another term as a majority, as um conference chair or whatever the title is. So she's not really going to be a future leader. She's she's a placeholder and, and, and wants in on the action. 
So it's, it, you know, and so then you get Steve Scalise is the one guy who would probably be legit, like legitimately well-liked by the MAGA base. He's been kind of in the, in the system for a long time. But, you know, he, he right now is, uh, he's the number two, and, uh, and he could probably play the number two role just as well. He could stay either stay as whip or he could, uh, you know, move up. But it just would be uh, astronomical. And remember, I started to say, I, I, I'm, if you look at the policy things, the president could put in the budget, the fight over the budget, over building the wall, over, you know, controlling the, the immigration question, you would never have to worry about crazy tax cuts that they're going to do. It just would be spectacular. So that's my that's my proposal. And what I what I am what I want to say is it's not just it's not a joke. It's not a it's not an idea. It is a absolutely positively 100 percent thing we should do that is um, aimed at uh, motivating Americans uh, and get and getting um, uh, and getting people excited to vote and then good policy on the other side. Good policy. And frankly, the media, we, we instantly save uh, all the media from uh, they're all going. They're all they're not they're not going under. They're losing ratings all the time. And it's will immediately turn it around, <laughs> get them excited. So uh, and uh, that's my idea. I think we should do it. So I am embracing my friend Gene D'Agostino. I am I am leading now. I will organize this in some ways. We'll find out what we can do. But the biggest thing is we've got to get President Trump to agree to be Speaker Trump. And then things take off from there. All right. So that's the idea. We'll see uh, if he'll do it. By the way, I've never heard if anybody asked him. I've never heard any comments. I mean, he doesn't do much media right now. So it's hard to know. Uh, you know, it's hard to get much of a response, although he's starting to do from the desk of Donald J. Trump. He's doing those kind of pseudo uh, tweets and uh, posting. So maybe he'll comment on this. All right, everybody. When we get back, we'll talk with uh, Matt Stoller, uh, wrote Goliath, Goliath, the book. And it's over at Substack. We'll talk with him about uh, the size of big tech, whether they how they can be whether no, there's no debate. No debate, they need to be broken up. But what, why it's not happening, what we can do about it. We'll talk with Matt Stoller and then John Schlafly after that. Get an update on his column. Don't forget, visit ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com to find out all um, you need to know and sign up for the daily email. All right, we'll take a quick break. Be right back. It's Ed Martin here in the Pro America Report. Talk to you soon. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Welcome back. It's a very great pleasure for me. Our next guest is Matt Stoller. And Matt Stoller is uh, a guy who is uh, writing over at Substack. I'll talk about that in a minute. But he also wrote a book, which I think I've told him before, that I bought on Audible. It's called Goliath, the 100-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. And Matt, I'm looking at it now, trying to remember when it published, because uh, it is perfect timing for the number of things. Yeah, 2020, I thought so. October of last year, it published. And it's it's so topical. It's so interesting. And uh, so congratulations again on that book. But I, what I really want to talk to you about is the new Biden administration, Matt. And you, you posted something over on Substack a few... Um, a few weeks ago now, it's longer ago than I remembered when I first started to get you on. I guess it was late April about an FTC nominee. So uh, first of all, Matt, welcome back. And tell me, what's what is the uh, what's the state of play in the Biden administration in terms of of the issues of monopoly and antitrust and all this power by some of these big companies? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And thanks for having me on. So what's happening with uh, I think it sort of started under Trump, but it's now continuing under Biden, is a kind of rebellion by both sides of the aisle against the power of big tech firms 
and big business in general, although big tech is kind of the pace setter. So the Trump administration started with antitrust suits against Google and Facebook saying we got to break those companies up. Biden has continued those suits. And a lot of people, and I'm a Democrat, but a lot of people, we were, we were afraid that he would point, appoint friends of big tech to the administration. But instead, he appointed someone named Lena Khan. And Lena is a scholar from Columbia University and a, and a former investigator on, for the antitrust subcommittee, who is probably the leading scholar whose work is taking on the power of big tech. So it was sort of an extraordinary moment for to see Biden actually take take a stand and say, we need to do something about big tech. And then in Lena, in, in Lena Khan's hearing, the Republicans and the Democrats were actually both quite friendly saying, hey, this is something we've got to do. So it's sort of one of these moments when you saw actually both parties come together and say, you know, we're afraid of Mark Zuckerberg's power. We need to do something about it. We're talking with Matt Stoller and his uh, Substack, by the way, where he writes is uh, mattstoller.substack.com. If you go to Substack and search for his name, you'll find it too. Okay, but, you know, I have friends in the conservative uh, movement who say to me, well, you, you know, conservatives had power for two full years. You know, Paul Ryan was speaker, McConnell's in charge of the Senate, Trump's in the White House, and they didn't do anything. In fact, they'll point fingers. They'll say people like Jim Jordan, who, who rattles a lot of sabers, ultimately, you know, right now, that if the Republicans are saying that they're mad at Facebook, for example, right now there's enough Democrats, I think, in the House that they could do something but they're not right. I mean, who, why are they not? Is it is it uh, is it Nancy Pelosi? Or is it leadership in both parties that don't want it? I mean, at this point, everybody should see the problem of the power and the un- imbalance. But nothing's really being done, is it? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 hard to say because things do move. They're just moving slowly. So, you know, you do have two major antitrust suits against Google and Facebook. But yeah, you're basically right. I mean, the Republican Party, I think, is in a position where the voters have certainly decided, hey, we want something done about this. And you're seeing some younger members of Congress and senators saying, hey, you know, we need to do something about this. Uh, but yeah, you've got people like Jim Jordan and Mike Lee is is kind of on this, you know, doing this too, where they're kind of caught um, because they used to be libertarians. And they were like, we don't want to touch business because business is always good. And now they're realizing that, you know, like we all are, that actually Facebook is more like a government than a business. And Amazon is more like a government than a business. And these are really dangerous concentrations of power. But they have yet to leave their kind of libertarian ethos behind. And so they often talk a good game. But like when they're in committee, they, you know, will vote the wrong way. They'll try to distract people. Sometimes some of them will take money from big tech. So it's kind of like this, this, uh, yeah, it's kind of a cynical game for some of, some of them. And I hope that they do start to change and actually start to follow through on some of their aggressive rhetoric. Uh, you're cutting out a little bit, uh, Matt. We're losing Matt St- uh, Stoller a little bit. I'm not sure if you're moving around, Matt, but uh, hey, I'm, um, I'm, let I'm me, here. that sets Can up you... my next. Yeah, Is I got you back now. Me? We're good now. Um, yeah. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, we're good. Yeah, yeah sorry. Good. Um, uh, uh, so that's all right, Matt. So um, uh, a different version of the same question. Um, at this point, everybody. I, so I, I have told people. I, I have. I've, t- I've used the phrase the narrative machine. My listeners get tired of it. I say it's big tech with big media and big government. 
and they work together. They decide what the narrative is. I mean, I don't know if they decide in a room, but they drive a narrative and they're, they're dominating. And the thing about big tech that I would say is different than the other two is big tech is using the power, not just of, of business, but of neuroscience. I mean, Facebook is using neuroscience and you know, you, you, we could do an analysis of Amazon. They're doing the same thing, I'm sure, but they certainly can at least say, well, we're selling stuff you want. It's a marketplace. Facebook is actually using neuroscience to drive, you know, uh, an AI to drive an, the, the agenda of getting more clicks and getting more attention. And ultimately someone has to make decisions about what you see, it, whether it's the algorithms, how they're written or whatever. Everybody knows that now, but, and, but there's not, there's not a, a, an urgency about it. I, I mean, I just, so it's kind of like, yeah, we think this is a big deal, but we're not going to do much about it. Is it, is it the power of the lobby that says, don't touch us? Is it the incomprehensible, uh, you know, what could you do? You know, what's your imagination on how do you break up a Facebook or whatever? What, what is it that, uh, you know, what is stopping them from understanding the problem and doing something about it? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I wish I knew. I mean, it, it, I think what's happening is you're seeing this kind of revolution um, of thinking on the part of policymakers where they're saying, you know, we need, really need to do something different, but they're not used to it, right? So the, the muscles, the muscle memory of how to actually govern, of how to actually say to a company, you're going to stop doing this thing that, that is dangerous for our society, that muscle memory is gone. It hasn't, we haven't used it really since the sixties or the 1970s, maybe the eighties somewhat. And so, you know, we have to rebuild it. So at a lot of agencies, there's a lot of people who think, yeah, maybe we should, um, maybe we should do something. And then they don't do anything. I mean, this is what we saw during the financial crisis, right? Instead of just breaking up the banks, we like over-regulated everything because nobody wanted to take responsibility for actually making, you know, holding bankers accountable for what they did. Instead, they prefer to just kind of like let no one take responsibility for anything. And that's kind of a systemic problem that we have in our politics. You do see, I think, with big tech firms, it's really clear that Mark Zuckerberg is in charge, that he's a real problem. And that if he if our government doesn't stand up, if, if our democracy, if our political leaders don't stand up to Mark Zuckerberg, then no one will. And they'll start running America for the benefit of Facebook instead of making sure that Facebook fits into our Republican system. We're talking again with uh, Matt Stoller. And again, he's over at Substack. He writes at Substack. You should check him out there. And, and his book is called Goliath. It's really good and really interesting and uh, very timely for this time. Um, Matt, it did, how does it, how does it fit in, in your mind? I know you said earlier you're a Democrat, but I, I think you care less about the partisan label than watching the systems in our country work well. What, when you see everybody say, yeah, the election in 2020, it, it was perfect. I mean, I, again, I, I haven't seen enough evidence to say it was not perfect or totally fraudulent. I don't say, I'm, I'm not saying here seeing that. On the other hand, when you watched, if you, if you sat back, I, I thought that the piece, I thought that the book that was the most um, sort of well-positioned, got not enough attention, was uh, over at Breitbart. I think Joel Pollack wrote a book, Neither neither Free Nor Fair. And he went through and he said, he didn't, he didn't think that it was the election day intrigue that was the problem. He said the way they used the polls in the run-up to the election, the way they used media, the way big tech was uh, hammering on, you know, influencing things. I mean, isn't it already true that Facebook and a few others, they're, they're able to influence anything we see 
and therefore they're able to tell us what we know. And once you've got that, it's pretty easy to predict what people will do. So, I mean, aren't, isn't Facebook running America already? So I, here's here's one way to, to see it. So in 2004, the Democrats disputed the election. Even though I think the election was fairly decided then. Um, even though I'm Democrat, I wanted Kerry to win. I think it was fairly decided, and George Bush won. I think the same thing is true this time. I think it was fairly decided, even though the Republicans objected that that um, uh, Joe Biden won. But I think that what we saw before the election, and this is particularly true with the Hunter Biden story, um, I think right. that was incredibly dangerous. Where the New York Post came out with what looked like a credible story about Hunter Biden and you know the, the laptop, and I think that the story has basically been validated. Um, and they said, right. Look, there's a bunch of you know useful information here. And Facebook and Twitter decided that they were just going to not let that story spread. They made explicit choices about what information the American public could have and what they, they couldn't have. And I think that that is not appropriate for a private institution to be doing if that private institution has dominant market power. Like it doesn't matter if it's just like a magazine or a TV channel or something like that. But when you're talking about a firm that has, you know, over 200 million users in the United States, like you're talking about the public square. And so that's a really dangerous problem. And we saw that with the Hunter Biden. um, We saw that with with the Hunter Biden story. You've also seen it on the left. So this isn't really a left right issue, but I think it's something that we should all be concerned about and really start to address with breakups and regulation to make sure that these decisions are made by we the people and not Mark Zuckerberg. All right. Well, I think Matt Stoller, you're well positioned to be the guy that people uh, should be talking to about this again. Matt Stoller, it's over. He's over on Substack writing regularly, but get his book, Goliath. Uh, thanks very much, Matt. We'll have you on again. It was too long in between uh, interviews and uh, appreciate you very much. Hey, thanks a lot. Bye. All right. We'll be right back, everybody. Ted Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. It's time to talk with John Schlafly. John Schlafly is uh, one half, at least one half, he may think he's more than one half, of the brother duo, Andy and John Schlafly, who write the weekly Schlafly Report, which posts over on uh, townhall.com. And uh, this week's column, I don't see the title, John. I'm sorry. I cut and pasted the uh, the uh, uh, part of it into my email, so I don't see the title, but it's a uh, it's again about Liz Cheney and the leadership of the Republican Party. So welcome back, John. Uh, set up the column for us that people can read over at townhall.com. Well, uh, great, Ed. Great to talk to you. And, yes, we, uh, we're drawing a larger meaning out of the whole Cheney flap. It's a pretty big deal, we think, because right. uh, the demise of Liz Cheney um, is, you, is really the last, you could say it's the death rattle of the historic globalist faction of the Republican Party represented by the Bush family and by Karl Rove. You know, she represented them. And even to the point where more recently where Adam Ginziger, who of course is facing his own challenge for re-election, uh, as Liz Cheney is, um, and uh, Rove had raised money and helped uh, Ginziger, and Ginziger was backing Cheney, and uh, but the but the vast vast majority of the Republican conference is not having it because uh, it's clear that the over vast majority of the conference is 
supports a Trump view, an American first view of the Republican Party. It's the grassroots party. And, um, you know, that's the legacy of Donald Trump on the Republicans who are elected closest to the people in the House of Representatives. So I think that's the lesson that we're drawing from this. Uh, we're talking with John Schlafly. His column is at Phyllis, excuse me, at townhall.com. He and Andy Schlafly weekly, the Schlafly Report, and also is uh, at uh, uh, phyllisschlafly.com. John, um, but I hate to say it, you know, I don't want to sound like Mark Twain too often, but the, the demise of Karl Rove has been, you know, uh, erroneously reported a lot. I know that I'm paraphrasing Mark Twain, but, I, you know, it, it feels like every time you turn around, he's starting another massive fund. You know, he raised, I don't know, three or four, five, ten million dollars for Georgia. And Georgia was lost again, the Senate races. But I don't know. I mean, what makes you think this time around it's not a it's kind of like every time there's a shift in the winds, uh, the, the, the rove wing kind of uh, reemerges when the wind settles down again. Well, Carl Rove, to give him his due, he's very artful. He's uh, fast on his feet and he may be able to adjust to the reality, although, you know, that was a big mistake. Uh that he, you know, backed Kinsinger and, and to support Cheney. But, uh, uh, you know, Rove, after all, he's, it's true, he has survived, and he survived on the Fox News channel long after they got rid of Kinsinger. You know, Kinsinger, uh, some of your listeners, Ed, will remember when Adam Kinsinger was on the Fox News channel as a guest practically every day. Well, he hasn't been on since he voted against Trump, and, uh, and rightfully so. Because he's cast mm-hmm. his lot with Liz Cheney, and uh, those who did could not adjust to where the people are, the Republican voters, the majority of the Republican voters who still support Trump, who still think Trump won the election, if you only count the ballot ballots and not the invalid ones, um, you know, that's where the base is. So, yeah. Um, well, John, I, I, I want to make some more news. I, I, I recently I was um, I told, in my open today, I was talking about, you may recall, John, uh, we're talking with John Schlafly, who also wears uh, one of the senior leadership hats at the uh, at the Phyllis Schlafly Eagles uh, for many years now. But you may remember, John, when I went to South Carolina a few years ago and I met my friend Gene D'Agostino and Gene reminded me today, sent me a screenshot of the Washington Examiner writing up that Ed Martin has called for uh, Donald Trump to be Speaker of the House and that was, I don't know, a few months ago. Well, I'm renewing that call today, John, because it solves all the problems, right? We don't, no one thinks McCarthy is strong enough. He's had to deal with Cheney. He let Cheney be there. No one really thinks Elise Stefanik is strong enough. That's the woman's going to replace him. You know, Steve Scalise is probably the best guy in there. And he's, you know, he's still recovering from being nearly murdered by the the uh, Bernie Sanders supporter or Bernie Sanders, uh, or the guy that liked Bernie Sanders a lot. So I think we need to put uh, to Donald Trump, He's perfectly positioned to be Speaker of the House. He then would have control of the budget. He could initiate the budget bills. He could fund the wall and all kinds of things in there. I mean, come on, jump on board here, John. This is the this is it. Just Speaker Trump. Well, I'm all for that, and if nothing else, it's a thought experiment. And uh, of course, that you that you don't mean right now. Of course, you mean after no, no. Right. the November yeah, 2022 tw- election when the Republicans. Uh, regain the majority as everyone expects them to. And, uh, right. So the house, you know, the house conservative, I mean, the, the, the house, the Republican study committee in the house, which is the largest it's ever been 
uh, with about 150 out of the 215 Republicans, although mm-hmm. it's still not quite enough to elect a majority. To elect a speaker, you have to have an absolute majority of the House of Representatives, not enough to have a majority of the Republicans. But uh, it's a great idea, uh, and especially when, you know, when you think back, uh, going back, uh, you know, McCar- Mc- Kevin McCarthy is the leader now, but he, before him, was Paul Ryan, who was terrible. And before Paul Ryan was John Boehner, who was terrible. And uh, Republicans in the House, and, and then you got Liz Cheney. So Boehner, yeah, well, Ryan, <clears throat> well, I mean, that is... You know, that's a trifecta of bad yeah. leadership, and it's time well, to bring in new leadership into the Republican conference. <clears throat> well, you're, you're, you're also, even just for our history buffs out there, the famous book, I can picture the cover, it was called Young Guns. It was Eric Cantor, Paul Ryan, and Kevin McCarthy. These were the future of the Republican Party. And, of course, Eric Cantor lost in a primary to Dave Brad over the immigration issue, fundamentally, led by Laura Ingram, who went down and campaigned. And then Ryan quit, the greatest American quitter we've ever had. And then Kevin McCarthy has reinvented himself. I give him respect. He certainly seems to periodically uh, you know, support President Trump. But here's the, here's the real detail, John. Again, you mentioned it. They're picking out the drapes up on Capitol Hill, the Republicans in the House. They think they're going to win the House. I don't see it. And, and the reason why I don't see it is because the X factor of any Republican coalition to, run, to, to win is Trump. And no matter what, if you looked across the land in 2020, House members, Republicans won because of Trump voters who were there. They were they were turning out. And if Trump isn't on the ballot, even if people are saying I like to build the wall or anything, I think a lot of the X factor, the Trump, the MAGA factor are going to be missing. And so if you did something like Trump for speaker, you gave all those those people that said, I hate the system. I hate both parties. I feel like I was left out. We lost our president, but I'll come get this because it's going to be Trump for speaker. I think it solves a lot of problems, John. Yeah, well, um, you're 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 right. Trump has not. He's still, you know, his silencing on social media has been devastating and he still hasn't found a way to break through that. That's that situation has got to be fixed soon. Uh, If he if uh, uh, if Donald Trump does have have the megaphone that he had in the past, uh, what you say is entirely possible. Yeah, I, I well, you know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. our earlier guest, John, on the program today is uh, was Matt Stoller, who wrote the book Goliath. He talked, we just talked about how Republicans say, Democrats say they want to break up big tech and then they don't do it. So you can't trust them. All right, John, I got to run though. I'm out of time. John Schlafly, go to, go to uh, excuse me, townhall.com or phyllisschlafly.com to get all of his columns with his brother, Andy. We'll take a break and be right back. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Presenting a daily conservative pro-family perspective since 1983 and continuing the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. Now here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. Even from outside the Oval Office, Donald Trump's statements continue to dominate the news more than Joe Biden's comments ever do. No matter what he says or does, the media tracks Trump's every move. Of course, they put plenty of left-leaning spin on their Trump coverage, but the fact remains they can never get enough of Trump. It's no wonder major media outlets are hemorrhaging viewers now that Trump is out of office. Only Trump can provide them with the sensational stories they thrive on. Of course, Trump is not totally depriving them of fodder for their hit pieces. 
The announcement that he will establish his own platform in social media has rocked the political world. A mass exodus from Twitter and Facebook to a new Trump platform could weaken those liberal monopolies. That's not all Trump is doing to keep the media spotlight on himself. Almost daily, Trump uses his near-perfect track record of successful endorsements to back a new challenger to an incumbent in the upcoming 2022 elections. Trump strongly endorsed the primary challenge by Representative Jody Heiss against the turncoat Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who presided over the loss in election integrity in Georgia. Under Raffensperger's lax oversight, the number of rejected invalid mail-in ballots declined sharply from 3.1% in 2018 to a measly 0.6% in the 2020 presidential election. Unless you believe that the fraudsters magically decided to give up their criminal ways for 2020, that means Raffensperger let thousands of fraudulent votes slip by undetected. Vernon Jones, a black Trump supporter who recently left the Democrat Party, announced that he may run against Georgia Governor Brian Kemp next year. Trump is also recruiting a candidate to challenge Georgia's worthless Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan. Then there's Herschel Walker, one of the greatest athletes of our lifetime. An outspoken black Trump supporter, Walker leads Georgia's newly elected Senator Raphael Warnock by 47 to 45 percent in a recent poll. Trump is truly inspiring new conservative leadership in Georgia. Trump still commands the media's attention. Whether from the White House or Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump controls the national discourse. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. What's the best way to rekindle the spirit of Phyllis Schlafly and the grassroots movement she energized? In this digital age, patriots and pro-family Americans can find insight and inspiration on our website, phyllisschlafly.com. Then, share your own heart and mind on social media. So join us at phyllisschlafly.com and every weekday for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. And we got to finish things up today. And I've got a story I have to tell you. I can't even stand this story. And I can't stand it because nobody's covering it. And it's out there floating. And it's this question. We had a record number of people vote mail-in ballot and absentee ballot in history, right? COVID was used as an excuse, I mean, used as a reason to reset some of the rules. The Democrats have admitted that they had a strategy to change as many rules as they could to do this. I'm not sure it's illegal. We haven't had that proof yet, but it certainly points you in a direction that makes you wonder. And so here's the story that hasn't been followed up on. There was a post about, um, about, uh, uh, I don't know, six weeks ago over at um, 538.com. That's Nate Silver, who he, he vaulted to fame uh, when he was at the New York Times. And he's a post. He's not really a poster. He's a statistician who um, uses what he sees in, in polling and sort of uh, does analyses of trend lines and how things fit together. And he's very clever. He's a very clever guy. It's a, you know, he's a, I think he leans left generally, but I, you know, I think he's somewhat honest. But here's the piece that he writes. And, and he, of course, here's how he, here's, let me tell you quickly how, how he leans. The story that I'm going to talk about is the absentee ballots in the 2020 election versus 2016. Amazingly, 
Millions and millions of more people voted absentee, but the rejection rate was absolutely minuscule. Now, here's how he leans Nate Silver, because he's not really, he's a statistician, so he can tell you what the stats say. Then he draws this conclusion. He basically says they, they got better. Everybody got better at uh, making sure that they were not rejecting bad ballots. It was really good. It was impressive. They filled out their ballots better. Do you believe that? I don't believe it. Uh, so here's but here's the setup again. Remember, in the 2020 election, we had unprecedented uh, uh, unprecedented pressure to increase the mail-in ballots and the absentee ballots because of COVID, right? And that was a real thing. Lots of people didn't want to go to a polling place at all. But we also have the Democrats after the election admitting that they were utilizing their own, so they called it fortifying the election to change as many laws as they could to advantage their uh, their side, which they thought would work better. So those are the two things that happened. Well, now we look at the numbers. And again, my point here is this story broke, or it should have broke, about six or six, six weeks ago as the beginning of the numbers started to come out. In 2016, you know, you look at the raw numbers. They're not all out yet, by the way. But the raw numbers in, in let's say, a state like um, Illinois, 6,000 voters, absentee ballots, absentee rejections, 6,000, or 1.6 percentage rate, a rejection rate in 2016, 33 point, 30, almost 34,000 in uh, in in um, uh, in 2020, and 1.7 rejection rate. Okay, so that's pretty normal. That's pretty like that. That seems like it's uh, going the right, you know, normal, right? That's a that's a pretty normal thing. It, it seems like about the same percentage. So now let's go and look at some of these other states. California, and and again, California, they they went from 0.7 rejection rate to 0.6 rejection rate. But when you start to go up, and you start to go, and we don't know yet. We don't have any any knowledge of the key states, Pennsylvania, Arizona. We don't, we have only some of these states that are close. By this, but what I mean is kind of swing states, right? Wisconsin. There is in Wisconsin, they went from one point four percent rejection rate in twenty sixteen to point two. That's a pretty big improvement, isn't it? That's a pretty big improvement on, on something that, you know, that's a, a, a pretty a, a surprise. North Carolina, they go from 2.6% rejection rate to 1.2% re- rejection rate. Now, the question becomes, what is it that's happened that makes them better at doing the, reje- the, doing the, the absentee ballots? What is it that changed? I'm not sure I know the answer, but it sh- we certainly should get to the bottom of it, right? You know, in Massachusetts, they went from uh, 3.3% rejection rate down to 0.6% rejection rate. Uh, And by the way, what I'm saying is, I don't know the answer. But isn't it a big question? Isn't it a big question? Delaware goes from 1.3% rejection rate, absentee ballots, to 0.3. What is it that changed that made it go so dramatically down? Is it that people were checking less? Is it that they changed the requirements? I'm just not sure we know the answer. But if these numbers are are accurate, the difference becomes in states like Pennsylvania, Georgia, Nevada, uh, Arizona, Wisconsin is right there. It, it gets pretty close to swinging the whole election, right? And again, you know, one of the things that I've had people tell me that they don't believe that the election, when they say the election wasn't, there was no one grand conspiracy, one grand fraud. They think it was, a, someone used the term packetized, you know, little pockets of things that they did in all these different places to change things. I'm not sure that's true, again, but we don't know. So how is this issue not one of the biggest issues in the world that that in the year that we had more mail-in ballots, more uh, absentee ballots, that the, the rates, everybody suddenly got better? Does that happen? Does it happen that you go from having, you know, 10,000 absentee ballots to review to having 50,000 and you get that much better? 
Or does it happen that you get much more likely to just stop checking hard? I'm not sure of the answer, by the way. I'm not sure. I don't know if I, I don't know the answer. But I know no one's digging into it. And this is what in story infuriates me. As we're going through this process, you know, you will not have no, you'll have no way to ever audit the systems on things like this question. Because how do you go back and try to show what the what the you know the ballots are separated from their envelopes? I mean, all these kinds of things that can happen. So it it, it strikes me that maybe and maybe that's the answer. Maybe the media is not covering it because they just don't have any way to do it. They have no way to find their, themselves back to the uh, to the pa- you know to figuring out what's there. But of all the things that happened in the election 2020, one of the most obvious is that they had such a huge increase in absentee ballots, mail-in ballots, and you had a massive improvement in the the uh, in filling them out. You know, in other words, I remember somebody telling me in Oregon, I think they do all mail-in ballots, and they have for a few years, and they said it took like two or three cycles before they sort of got the hang of it, and the voters too. Because voters the first time out, they do the thing wrong. They fill it out wrong. They send it in wrong. They, they, they date it wrong. They sign it wrong. But somehow this time in 2020, it was just magically perfect or magically directionally better. Pretty hard to believe. All right, we got to run, everybody. Thank you, as always, to know our technical director, Joanna, for booking our guests. And you for listening. Please come back tomorrow. It's Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Talk to you then. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego.